from the studios of KPCW in Park City. It's This Green Earth, a weekly talk show about the environment and our relationships with it. I'm Chris Cherniak. And I'm Nell Larson. Our first guest this morning is Layla Phillip, professor in the Department of English at the College of the Holy Cross and author of the new book, Beaverland, How One Weird Rodent Made America. Beginning with the early transatlantic trade in North America, the book traces the beaver's profound influence on our nation's early economy and feverish Western expansion, its first corporations, and multimillionaires. Professor Phillip follows fur trappers, traders, and auctioneers, as well as wildlife managers, PETA activists, Native Americans, environmental vigilantes, scientists, engineers, and the color go- colorful group of people known as beaver believers. Beaverland, how one weird rodent made America in the first part of the show. Then in the second half, we'll speak with Zach Frankel, executive director of the Utah Rivers Council, about a bill which would provide up to some $300 million over the next five years to help restore the Great Salt Lake. Its formal title is HB 286, and the funding would come from existing annual sales tax revenue. We'll talk to Zach Frankel all about that. And... Uh, a nice little news item, uh, if we have time, about the sales of electric vehicles, not only here in the U.S., but globally. It's good news for the electric vehicle industry. <laughs> a special treat this yeah, morning. Yeah, it, it's a... Uh, uh, <laughs> yeah, that's what our show is all about, uh, our impact upon and relationship with the environment. That's it. That's it's right. this green earth. Environmental, oh, okay. Environmental awareness and education. That's what this green earth is all about. Stay with us. Welcome back to This Green Earth. I'm Nell Larson. And I'm Chris Cherniak. And joining us now uh, for the first part of the show is Layla Phillip. She's a professor in the Department of English at the College of the Holy Cross. And she's also the author of the new book, Beaverland, How One Weird Rodent Made America. Uh, Professor Phillip, thanks so much for joining us this morning. Thank you so much for having me. I just love talking about beavers and this book. Um, So thank you. Well, we have that in common, I think. Uh, we love talking about beavers, and we're we're really excited to see your new book. We loved reading it. Um, and to kick things off, um, we'd love to know how how did you come upon this topic as as a writer? Well, oh, thanks. That's such a great question. Um, you know, I guess I just have to say I've always been interested in the way humans, interface with the natural world. I grew up on a farm in the Hudson Valley. Um, Like a lot of kids on a farm, you know, I was often bored and hot. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And one of the great gifts of growing up on a farm probably, and and a a kid at that time was boredom. And I just gravitated down to the pond. Um, And I I spent a lot of time watching frogs. And I, you know, I I say this um, kind of jokingly, but I didn't understand then why I gravitated to the pond. I didn't understand the tremendous biodiversity and everything that was happening in that little bit of wetland. But now after leaning into this book and spending six years researching beavers and wetlands and paleo rivers and the tremendous importance of this little rodent on the river system in North America and everything that came from that, I, I do now understand why Instinctively, as a kid, I went to where things were happening, which was down at the wetland. But here, where I live in New England, one day I was walking 
as I usually do my dog and and I walked by a patch of woods that I go by every day and I saw beavers making a pond uh, near my house and it was one of the most incredible things I'd ever seen and it just literally stopped me in my tracks and I have to say like full disclosure I, I'm not a beaver I wasn't a beaver expert um, I'm a writer not a scientist and I, I just really was stunned and I, I started observing them and watching them and one beaver I felt really started watching me and I, I developed this kind of relationship with these beavers and then I would start you know researching them and the beavers disappeared so I set out on a quest to kind of figure out what had happened to them but what I would discover um, and what led me to really lean into this book was that Beavers literally shaped our country. So the first foundations of wealth, as you mentioned, the transatlantic fur trade came from beaver fur. You know, our first multimillionaire, John Jacob Astor, is there on the wharfs of Manhattan trading beaver pelts. And then it wasn't just the first economies, both here in the United States and up in Canada, but literally the geography, the, the river system, came from this incredible work that beavers do creating wetlands and we are just now beginning to understand the shape of paleo rivers because we of course you know are looking at rivers that are the the, the after effects of colonization and then everything that has come after that so we really are now just starting to understand what rivers want to look like not the way we have shaped, shaped them. And we're dealing now, of course, with the greatest environment, you know, crisis of our generation, which is climate change. And now beavers, this animal that we almost wiped out with the fur trade has this incredible new role to play with environmental restoration because they can help us with all these problems. So there's this tremendous story of American history, both natural history and social history, but also now there's this incredible sto story, I think, of hope and resiliency because they can literally help us face our collective future because they're one of the greatest conservation comeback stories. They can, you know, smart policies at the right time brought beavers back. And we have to give people credit for that in 1904. 1905 out here in New York, people worked hard to bring beavers back. Hmm. 1914 in Connecticut, and I write about this in in the book. Um, out in Idaho, not far from you, um, there was this really probably one of the most amazing beaver reintroduction hmm. pro programs, the Idaho program. They parachute dropped beavers back into the Idaho wilderness. So <laughs> tremendous efforts were made to return beavers and people were so excited. I mean, last week I was looking up stories of beaver reintroduction because, I mean, I, I spent six years writing this book. I, I love this book. I've put this book into the world, but I'm still interested in the topic. So I was looking at these old newspapers and I found this article in 1927, the Tioga News, and the community was so thrilled, like first beaver sighted. And this hmm. was 1927, you know, up in uh, New York State. So people have had this really interesting relationship with beavers, which which also fascinated me. Like first they were pelts. Right. And then pests. Right. Hmm. And so we've had this kind of love hate relationship with beavers. And 
I could talk a lot about that. It's part of why, in a weird way, beavers are very understudied as an right. animal. But um, anyway, I've gone on and on. Right. You probably have other questions. <laughs> well, I mean, it, it's all fascinating. I, as as an ecologist, you know, I'm I I've been so aware of the importance. Um, of beavers to our water and our water quality and to our you know native fish and our our wetlands and our other wildlife species and I I feel like that story has started to get out to uh, the public as well in recent years there's so much activity around beavers and in fact in our area um, or I should say you know here in Utah there's a lot of activity around um, restoring habitat um, you know in in partnership <laughs> with beavers but yeah. one thing we haven't heard as much about is the history of it. And so the uh, perspective, the historical perspective that you bring in this book was really fascinating to me and frankly kind of surprising. Um, were, I, were you surprised by the importance that, you know, sort of beavers had in American and world history? And are you finding that your readers are as well? Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's really fascinating. I mean, there are, beavers have gained a lot of kind of monikers and names within um you know the campus a biologist and people who know about them call them water superheroes because they understand right that beavers can help us face all the problems we are facing with floods and fire and drought because they repair our wetland system i mean they're so integral to wetlands which are so integral to water right um they're ecosystem engineers they're a keystone species like that brick in the medieval archway if you take the brick away the archway falls and ecologists know you take beavers out of the landscape and the ecology falls apart so geomorphologists now call beavers that keystone species and they call that period of colonization now the great drying these are all things you know, and maybe a lot of your listeners know, but a lot of people I think are just learning that they overlooked beavers. Um, and I think because they're a rodent and because they're so, there's like this ordinary marvel, you know? Mm. And I think also there was maybe the years of thinking about, you know, the conversion of natural resources into power has always been the propelling force of empire. You know, it's happened all over the world and we did it here with beaver, right? And I think the, the the after effect of that is it's sort of hard to catch up and then think about that animal in as a charismatic mammal the way you might <laughs> a wolf, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> or, yeah. And they don't have beautiful fangs or ears. I mean, <laughs> they're just wonderfully weird, which is why I really lean into the beaver as an animal in the book. But what I was fascinated by and, and I leaned into and I really wanted to share with readers and I spent years researching to answer your question is that actually there have been people who have said, have discovered beavers. In fact, even Henry David Thoreau was kind of a early proto beaver believer. Hmm. And in fact, his famous, um, you know, essay happens in a swamp. So he sort of, had all the pieces, he just wasn't a geomorphologist or a hydrologist, you know, but he instinctively understood that that, that wetlands were key, right? It just, we just was putting it in a different language. And um, so I think 
flash forward to 1913, we've got Enos Mills, who I write about, who ironically was Roosevelt's first spokesman for the Forest Service. <laughs> so he actually saw in beavers um, their role in environmental restoration. And he, he writes about them and he says, look, right at that time, he was part of the great, you know, timbering of the, you know, U.S. forests. And he, um, he says beavers can can make America beautiful again. So he he he's writing about this, but then his work is very quickly forgotten. So we we have what I would call this kind of ecological amnesia about beavers. So certain people would rise up and write about the beaver and their work was very quickly ignored. And then Dorothy Richards, who I write about, I have a whole you know chapter about it, a, a beaver sprite, this woman in the 1930s in the Adirondacks, who spends her life studying beavers and she builds the first beaver sanctuary out here in New York. And I think she her work was, you know, ignored for many reasons. But the point I'm making is there were individuals who identified this and kind of raised the call about beavers. But it's only wonderfully now that I think there's enough momentum. And so I think we really are at a different turning point. But I thought it was really important to connect the dots and right. and put all that history down um, and, and pay homage to people who had gone before and works that had been overlooked or ignored. Um, right. Because I think we can learn a great deal from that. We're speaking with Layla Phillip. She's a professor in the Department of English Environmental Studies program at the College of the Holy Cross. We're talking about her book, Beaverland how one weird rodent made America. So in addition to keystone species, uh, there are a, a percentage of the, the public or so that see and still do see beavers as, well, as you also describe, rodents and or pests and need to be you know, uh, eradicated in one way because they get in our way in one form or another. Uh, and and so how close did the beaver become from being eradicated in many states in this country? Oh, uh, very close. Yeah. I mean, and I think one of the things that's really interesting, um, I was actually talking to Dr. Berkstead, who actually I write about in the book. I go up in the White Mountains of New Hampshire with her. She's a geomorphologist and a trained engineer. So she's a really interesting researcher because she had spent years basically um, working to dam up rivers until she had this um, sort of light bulb moment, um, realizing that river restoration couldn't just be about then removing the dams on rivers, mm. that connectivity was a lot more complicated than removing dams because actually the kind of damming work that beaver dams do, which is about slowing water down which creates connectivity between water and land is actually really key. And I think now in environmental restoration and river restoration, there's a lot more conversation about slow water. So like, you know, what does water need to do? Water needs to be flexible, it needs to move, but basically we need to slow water down so it has time to sink into the land, get down into the aquifer and be mm -hmm. cleansed on its way down. So we, we, we know all that. And so the question now is, how do we accomplish that? And um, so um, 
not only are we just sort of discovering a lot more about the paleo rivers and talking to Dr. Dr. Berkstead, um, we were we were talking about how um, not only were beaver, you know, really pretty much almost wiped out, you know, first in the east and then throughout large stretches of the west, Midwest and then the west, but there, there, there are a lot of myths about beavers, and mm -hmm. one of them is that because they're rodents, they're very, they, they repopulate very quickly, almost like you know mice. They will just reproduce um, quickly, and mm -hmm. you don't have to worry about that. But actually, new studies are revealing that they are not actually um, spreading and um, out as quickly as they might be or ought to be and so that they actually need more support than we're giving them and that's that's a little bit of a wake-up call for um supporting beavers in the landscape now and and i think that's actually very timely another beaver myth is that they and this is maybe a, an important insight people out here in the east often will remove beavers because they want to protect the trees and they say i can't have beavers because they're going right. to just keep Chewing down my trees right. because they have these ever-growing teeth. But actually, beavers maintain—they do have ever-growing teeth, uh, but they maintain them by grinding them in their idle moments. And this goes back to a point I tried to make earlier, and I want to underscore: the animal itself is so understudied. We have studied their dams and been fascinated by what they do because beavers are brilliant. No other animal in the animal kingdom can build constructs its world ex apart from man, A. And then the largest animal construction seen by satellite on Earth is a beaver dam. It's mm. up in Canada. I write about it in the book. So they are incredible builders, and we've been interested in that. We still don't understand quite how they do that. I, I write about this researcher at Harvard who appears to be cracking the code of beaver intelligence by approaching it from a different perspective, more in terms of a collective intelligence versus only looking at individual intelligence, but um, the animal itself is understudied. And so a lot of the myths about the beaver, like it has to continually chew down trees, that it eats trees, actually beavers survive on aquatic vegetation, not, they, they only eat tree bark. Uh, out here in the winter, they build caches of twigs and sticks to survive the winter. The, rest of the time they want aquatic vegetation like water lilies and cattails and duckweed and things so they're they need to be thought of more like water farmers so they'll build a mm. pond or a wetland so the food they like to eat will grow um not as tree tree biters tree killers but that's one of the myths for taking them out another myth out here and in the midwest that's very prevailing is right. that they warm the water and kill the fish ah Right. I think that's been dispelled out your way, but it's still very active in many parts of the country where uh, beaver dams are broken and, and the beavers are taken out because the idea is it's either the fish or the beavers. Sure. A lot of misconceptions out there. I, I wanted to ask about one other, I guess, sort of potentially tough or tricky topic um, when it comes to beavers and nuts, and that's their trapping. And, and you spend a fair amount of time in the book um, talking with a trapper and learning about um, 
you know, his work in that area. And um, would you just share some of your experience with that and sort of maybe the perspective that, that you gained from that? Yeah, I mean, I, I should say, I mean, I didn't come out of this a, a fur trapper, but I did um, have a lot of respect for the fur trappers I got to know out here. And in fact, when my own beavers went missing here in Connecticut, the people who knew the most about beavers in my town were fur trappers. And I was really impressed by their knowledge base of the animals and often at least the fur trappers, I came to know their love of the animals and their love of the woods and their woodcraft. And that that really kind of um, confused me initially and just changed up a lot of my ideas about who they were. And I was initially really intimidated to go to fur trapper gatherings. It just was not a world I thought I would have anything in common with any of these people. And um, But I learned to have a lot of respect for the people I met. And in fact, out here, they were lobbying and doing a great deal of um, important work to create habitat for beavers. So the whole situation became really complicated and not at all black and white in terms of um, advocating for beavers here. So I want to put that out there and also um, and I think the situation is really different in different regions. So out west, there are very different issues on federal land than there are here on state land. But one other thing is there are instances where beavers can't remain, especially here in the crowded east. And um, the Beaver Institute here in uh, Massachusetts has an incredible resource for helping people manage human beaver conflict. And they... Um, really work with people to put in pond levelers and put in these trapezoidal shaped enclosures around culverts that mm -hmm. really nine times out of 10 will enable towns and municipalities and landowners to, um, if beavers are creating a problem flooding a road or an area, um, basically manage the water so that the beavers can stay and they don't have to be taken out by lethal means. But there are times when they will work, um, you know, with trappers to remove beavers. And if they need a beaver removed, they would rather it be removed by somebody who knows how to do it really well. And part of the problem out east is policies need to change. You cannot relocate animals here. Um, and I think this is something that really does need to be changed because beavers are not a big vector for rabies. Um, they can be relocated out west in a mm -hmm. lot of states, but in Connecticut, Massachusetts, New York, if someone has a nuisance problem and they call a nuisance wildlife trapper, that beaver will be killed. It won't be relocated. So it's, you know, it's a lot of things have to change out here. Well, we, we have just a couple minutes. Um, but Nell uh, is, is uh, executive director of one of our local nature preserves. And so Nell, you have occasionally beaver issues surrounded by homes and stuff. So have you had beavers relocated? 
Uh, no, we haven't, and we've also never brought them in, but they have found their way into the preserve in the right. past few years, and we have put to work many of the techniques. Beaver uh, deceivers. Beaver and deceivers and beaver pond levelers uh -huh. and um, all different kinds of things that... Um, can, can help with this issue. So if people need help, reach out. We have resources, um, and there are also some good ones online. Um, we can just kind of share some local experience But at the it. same time... But I, I'll just have to add, okay. throughout Utah, there is actually now sort of... It's starting to come together, a beaver relocation program. Okay. There's a beaver quarantine site at Utah State University. There's There are options. Okay. Yeah. All right. So... I mean... Go ahead. I think what... Yeah. yeah I mean, if I may say, the problem is education... I mean, I think, um, uh, um, and and any people, you know, listening to this, I, I think it's really important to make changes to find out, you know, what's the problem and how can you come together with the community and solve the problem. And often, interests overlap. So down in Chesapeake, I write about this. There was a a, a, a farm where they wanted to take the beavers out because the beavers were flooding, and the right. younger generation came and said, you know what, we actually really duck hunting is really important to us and the beavers are bringing so much biodiversity please please they're they're, they're creating these incredible duck hunting areas and so you know maybe there are interests that overlap and the beavers can stay so i think it's really important to listen and try to create um kind of shared common ground because in my experience you're not going to change people's historic attitudes about beavers but maybe you can find common common ground you know what i mean and 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 the point is to try to keep the beavers in the landscape well with that unfortunately it's it's time for us to wrap up we could talk beavers all hour sure. uh this um conversation is with uh, professor layla phillip author of beaverland how one weird rodent made america uh, where can our listeners learn more about you and where can they find your book Oh gosh, they can find my book hopefully everywhere. Um, <laughs> I have created an Instagram, Leela Phillip underscore author. You could just Google me, but um, I've been, you know, trying to do um, radio interviews like this to, to talk about beavers. I just think it's so important to spread information about beavers now. There's, it, it's an exciting, we're an exciting turning point. And I, and I think there's a lot to learn. And I think there's a lot beavers can teach us. Yeah, I, mean, I, I smile when you said during their idle moments, they grind their teeth. They don't have an <laughs> idle moment, do they? I, I don't want to leave that. We don't have any time, but busy ass, right? Uh, uh, well, actually, beavers are a lot more. One of the things that has come to fore, I wish we had another hour to talk about I know, about beavers. we only have a Just minute. Just me up. But, but they're a lot more affectionate and sociable than people realize. The, the myth of the beavers is, you know, driven, hardworking um, workaholic, but actually beavers are pretty, I think, humorous and, um, they only work when they need to. <laughs> it's a good know. philosophy. Just, just like me. Beaver. All right. Oh, well, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll add that to our next conversation with you. Uh, <laughs> Layla Phillip, professor, department of English, environmental studies program at the college of Holy Cross. Thank you so much for joining us and talking about your book, Beaverland, how one weird wrote it made america thanks professor thank you Phillip. so much right. thank you all right let's take a break a couple of uh, sponsors and underwriters when we come back we'll be speaking with 
Zach Frankel, uh, the executive director of Utah Rivers Council, about a bill currently uh, going through the House regarding the restoration of the Great Salt Lake. It's This Green Earth. We'll be right back. Welcome back to This Green Earth, a weekly talk show about our relationships with and impacts upon the environment. I'm Chris Cherniak. I'm Nell Larson. And joining us for the second part of the show is Zach Frankel. He's the executive director of the Utah Rivers Council, and he's here to talk about a bill currently going through the state house. Uh, it's HB 286, and it's with uh, attempts to address restoration of the Great Salt Lake. I'll leave it at that. Zach, you fill in some of the details. Thanks for joining us this morning on This Green Earth. Good morning, Chris and Nell. So nice to be here again and talk to you about the Great Salt Lake. Uh, let me jump into that bill sure. for folks Go. that are interested in protecting the Great Salt Lake. So Representative Joel Briscoe from Salt Lake City is running this legislation, HB 286, which would be a five-year authorization of funding to the Great Salt Lake to raise its water levels. And many Utahns may not realize that everything they purchase from a candy bar to an automobile has a sales tax right now that is going to advance the proposed Bear River development and the proposed Lake Powell pipeline. These two water projects have been collecting sales tax money from Utahns uh, for a construction fund for the last six years. And now Representative Briscoe is proposing to redirect that sales tax to an existing Great Salt Lake account that would be used by the Utah Division of Forestry, Fire, and Sovereign Lands to purchase water rights for permanent designation to the Great Salt Lake to raise its water levels. And just to finalize the understanding of it, right now about $60 million is being collected in sales tax monies for the proposed Lake Powell pipeline and proposed Bear River development. And over five years of time that the bill proposes to collect that funding, it would total an estimated $300 million that would be used to acquire water rights to raise the Great Salt Lake's water levels. So we know that there has been some bipartisan support for starting to support and protect the lake. That's been, been coming together to some extent. Any signs that there will be bipartisan support for something like this? There definitely is bipartisan support for protecting the Great Salt Lake. The challenge is that as you might imagine, there are a number of special interests inside the hallways of our state house that want that tax money to continue to go to the construction fund for the Lake Powell pipeline and the Bear River development. And it's water week at the Utah State House, so there's a ton of water lobbyists up there that are really trying to get that money, which is going, of course, to their companies to you know flush out their payrolls and they want that money to continue they want to see those projects advance and and that's really the question is will enough utahns come to the table this legislative session to express their concerns to their legislators about the fate of the great salt lake or will the water lobbyists be the ones that went out because they're the ones that are showing up right now 
What would be the impacts, you know, very briefly, I, I think we've done a whole interview about this in the past, but what would be the impacts of like the Bear River development and Lake Powell pipeline on, on the Great Salt Lake, sort of just to contrast that with this proposed legislation? Yeah, so the Lake Powell pipeline is the largest new proposed water diversion in the entire Colorado River Basin. So across all seven states, Utah is proposing the single largest new water diversion of the Colorado River at a time when obviously we're in a critical climate change driven drought and aridification process that is the new normal here in Utah. So so it's really going to impact both flows in the Grand Canyon reservoir levels and the water supply for 25 million people downstream. Bear River Development is one of the largest new water projects proposed really anywhere in the American West right now. It would divert 250,000 acre feet of water upstream of the Great Salt Lake. And because the Bear River is the single largest water source to the Great Salt Lake every year, providing 60 to 65 percent of the surface water to the Great Salt Lake every year, if we were to divert the Bear River, it would lower the Great Salt Lake several feet or more in elevation. It would essentially be the nail in the coffin that would really shrivel up and dry up the Great Salt Lake once and for all. Has has all of the sort of attention and maybe new understanding and urgency around the status of the lake, do you, do you think that it's impacted the maybe the drive or the motivation to create that project? Like, have you seen any shift in that over the past year or two? Yes, you know, it's kind of interesting because there has absolutely been, you know, global attention for the plight of the Great Salt Lake. It's the largest remaining wetland ecosystem in the American West. And more than 300 species of migratory birds are traveling across the Western Hemisphere that stop at the Great Salt Lake. Some eight to 10 million individual birds some gathering in larger numbers anywhere else on the planet. But a lot of these bird populations are really suffering. And so there's, even though there is global attention for the Great Salt Lake, essentially we're kind of what I believe is just the first phase in which decision makers are kind of trying to hide a bit about what policies they have been enacting and curtailing inside Utah for the last couple decades. We're America's number one highest per person municipal water user. We have the least expensive water rates. Instead of addressing our policies, which have been encouraging this water waste, policymakers have been you know, avoiding the hard conversations. And so although there have been some steps forward in policy to improve our water governance in Utah, we still are really decades behind other cities and states in the American West with much lower water use and more sustainable water paradigms. So it's really, you know, you ask the absolute right question and it's really up to, it's it's really a good question to see whether the public is going to show up the policy making house and implement a series of water conservation or whether we're going to just have sort of you know, hollow decisions and propaganda in our face or not. It's it's an open question that we're watching and hoping for the best. So, so Zach, you talk about uh, around a quarter million acre feet of water being diverted from the Great Salt Lake via this uh, uh, Bear River development project. 
where would that quarter million acre feet of water go instead of to the lake? It would go to the lawns uh, of the Wasatch Front <laughs> in four counties, which would use it to continue over irrigating, over applying water on our outdoor landscapes. You know, 70% of the water we use in Utah cities happens outdoors, mm -hmm. outside of our homes and businesses and institutions. And so that's really amazing because what that means when you think about the irrigation season, obviously look at the window right now, nobody's irrigating because everything's covered in snow. And so that means we use 70% of our water really in a six or seven month period. And it's, it's not an essential need, it's just a waste. Um, it's not uncommon to drive any neighborhood in the Wasatch Front in the summer and see gutters full of water because someone upstream is, is overwatering. So, you know, there, there's, there's a belief that I think folks have that, you know, water is about facts and decisions are made based on logic. And in reality, it's just like any other natural resource issue. Water is driven a lot by politics and special interest. At times, it's driven by propaganda. So, so the real purpose of Bear River Development, in my mind, is to spend $3 billion for the contractors whose lobbyists are up at the State House right now. It's not really to provide for future water needs along the Wasatch Front. We're speaking with Zach Frankel. He's the executive director of the Utah Rivers Council. And we're talking about a bill presently um, going through the House, HB 286, uh, designed to raise some $300 million to restore the Great Salt Lake. So, Zach, this, you also said that this money um, would be used to purchase water rights now i know our state's water rights are byzantine and <laughs> and <laughs> labyrinthic if, if you want to use that word but how does that actually work whose water rights are being purchased how does that purchase happen well you know the funny thing about water in utah right now is there's a tremendous amount of speculation just as people go and buy land and wait for the market for land to increase and then you know flip that land and sell it at a profit the same thing is happening in utah's water market and so there's an, a lot of speculation that happens in the water market right now and a lot of that water is just held and not really being policed to prevent non-use um speculators can hold on to water rights in utah for decades without really using it so that's where a lot of the water could be purchased from if the funding was available. It really is not enough capital to purchase water permanently, unfortunately. Um, and then the other place, of course, is that unfortunately we're losing our irrigated agriculture in Utah. We are paving our farmland. And that's certainly nothing to celebrate, but we shouldn't add insult to injury by ignoring the water on those irrigated fields. And there's a lot of water we can purchase if we had the capital and the state house would let us to acquire water from farms that are essentially, you know, being converted into black dot subdivisions, strip malls and the like. So, so that's primarily the two sources of where this water could come from. The Utah state house has not allowed private parties, however, to purchase water permanently as an in-stream flow. They view water left in a stream 
as an illegal use by an individual. So even if you are a farmer that wanted to take a portion of your water and put it in the stream that goes to the Great Salt Lake, the state of Utah, the legislators of the state house, refused to let these landowners that own these water rights from using their private property rights for the benefit of nature, which is unfortunate. We need to follow the lead of other states that recognize the value of in-stream flows on a permanent basis by individuals. So by purchasing these water rights, we're not saying that that water then would be somehow directed to the lake. It would just be taken out of play and just left alone in the ground, let's say? No, no, it would have to go to the Great Salt Lake. We'd oh. have to make sure the water does actually flow to the Great Salt Lake. So we'd have to, you know, we couldn't buy water out of a different watershed that doesn't go to the lake. We have to buy water within the watersheds of the Great Salt Lake under this bill so that the water would be used for in-stream flows in a river uh, that makes its way eventually to the Great Salt Lake. And just for our listeners, what does that, what does the watershed um, consist of? Give us a really geographical good question. sense of it. Yeah, Yeah. so the, the Great Salt Lake, as a reminder, is the remains of ancient Lake Bonneville that used to cover both Utah and Nevada before it blew a flood and caused, created the Snake River Canyon um, and, and, and drained its waters into the Columbia. And so the Great Salt Lake is fed now mostly by the Wasatch Mountain snowpack runoff. About 85 to 90% of the waters that enter the Great Salt Lake are from the snow melt of our snowpack headwater mountains. So the rivers that feed the Great Salt Lake the Bear River, again, counts for about 60% of the surface water entering the Great Salt Lake. And then the Jordan River is about 15%, 14% of the water inflow. The Jordan is a collection of the Spanish Fork and the Provo River upstream out of Utah Lake. And then, of course, the Weber River is the third primary surface water source. It's about 12% of the water flow that goes into the Great Salt Lake, 12 or 14%. And that, of course, includes the Ogden River as well. And what's interesting is that uh, a drop of water here uh, outside our studios mm -hmm. uh, uh, here in downtown Park City could end up in the Weber River, which ends up in the Salt Lake. So it's kind of counterintuitive in a sense that, well, it, wow, that lake is a, you know, a mountain range away. But water drains from here can down in the Great Salt Lake. So so property water rights up here in Summit County could be included uh, as part of this uh, purchasing activity. That's true. The, some, most of Summit County is in the Weber River Basin. Yeah. Um, and a lot of folks in Park City don't realize they're living in the Great Salt Lake watershed, but they are. They're living in one of the most important watersheds in the American West mm -hmm. because it is home to 300 million migratory bird species coming from every country in the Americas. So, yes, the waters of the Weber River and Summit County included uh, could be used for purchase to permanently designate those flows to eventually make it to the Great Salt Lake. Mm -hmm. So um, if this you know, legislation were to make it through, I'm curious about like what the concept is for how this would be applied on the ground. You know, in stream flow and streams drying up is a concern here in Summit County. We see it almost every summer now. 
would we be able to apply for funds to to purchase in stream flow rights from local water rights holders here in our basin up in the mountains and, and get that water down to the Great Salt Lake? Excellent question. I wish that the state of Utah, the legislature, would allow local agencies and individuals to acquire in-stream flows. But unfortunately, state house legislators refuse to let local agencies decide what's in their own best interest when it comes to local water flows. The HB 286 works within the existing decision-making that's happened in the legislature, which only allows three state agencies mm -hmm. to maintain in-stream flows. The one for HB 286, the one we're talking about, is the Utah Division of Forestry, Fire, and Sovereign Lands. And that's an agency the state of Utah has allowed to uh, designate permanent in-stream flows. In other words, to buy water and put that water in our stream or river for the benefit of the Great Salt Lake. We would love to see state law changed. We've written a bill that's only two sentences of language for the Utah Code that would allow individuals and local agencies and cities to use their local authority to buy water for the benefit mm. of local streams and rivers. But unfortunately, of course, the lobbyists in the in the hallways are not interested in letting local agencies own water rights hmm. in a permanent capacity local agencies can purchase water temporarily but the water rights are subject to approval by the state and at most they last 10 years and then one must um, re-up the lease and the difference you know in between a lease and a purchase in law in water law it's just the same as a lease, difference between a lease and a purchase of a car. Mm -hmm. Most people would rather purchase a car, and so the market for purchase is much larger than the market for leasing. All right, last couple minutes. Where is this bill right now, and what are its chances of passing? Oh, really good questions <laughs> and tough ones. First one's easy, of course. The, the bill is, is still stuck in House Rules Committee. It was unveiled last Wednesday, and so we're hoping it comes out of rules quickly. I'm sure that the leadership of the House and the Speaker of the House are being given immense levels of pressure from the water lobby that's there this week. Um, whether it comes out of rules is the big question, and folks that are interested in being involved can call their legislator and ask them to talk to anybody on rules and get them to let HB 286 out of rules. It's likely to pass. Passage is a tough one. It really comes down to what the Speaker of the House decides. It's really up to him whether or not this bill comes out of rules. Speaker Wilson has, of course, been the host of Great Salt Lake Summits for the last two years. And the question kind of is one for all Utahns. Are we going to hold Speaker Wilson accountable for letting this bill out of rules or is it going to be stuck i i think speaker wilson really does want to save the great salt lake so i'm hopeful that we can have a strong committee debate presumably in house natural resources and i'm hopeful that speaker wilson will follow through and and see the great salt lake you know water levels increase over time zach frankel executive director of the utah rivers council as always thank you to, uh, for taking the time to chat with us about House Bill 286 
and uh, we'll uh, we'll circle back with you in a month or so and see how things go or went. Sounds excellent. Mm -hmm. Sounds excellent. Thank you very much for having me today. All right. Thank you, Zach.